0: Alright, when you have your Bibles out, turn right away to First Peter chapter two, verse nine. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. Uh, we're gonna jump right into the word. There is a lot in today's passage that we're gonna cover. So 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. This is Peter again writing to the scattered church all over Asia, and this is what he writes. <clears throat> How many times this past week did you need to hear these verses? How many times did you need to be reminded that you are indeed chosen? On Tuesday afternoon, as you washed your third round of dishes for the day, did you feel like you've been chosen by the King of Kings? On Thursday morning, as your boss pointed out your mistake at work, Did you feel like royalty, like you are a child of the King of Kings? Yesterday during lunch at McDonald's, as your kids thoroughly embarrassed you with their behavior, were you aware of the fact that you're a member of a holy nation? Late last night, as you secretly returned to that website that you swore you wouldn't go to again, did the thought cross your mind that God's mercy is yours? Who are you? Who are you? Are you that person that you see in the mirror who fails too often? Who speaks too quickly? Who doesn't live up to the world's standard of prettiness or handsomeness? Who gave up on their dreams years ago? Who thinks that they deserve a fancier mirror than the one they're staring into? Are you that person, the one who listens far too much to the voices around them and inside their head, or are you that person who defines or at least tries to define themselves by the word of God? Are you that person who doesn't even take the time to listen to what God has to say about the person he's created and saved for his purposes? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It's one of those passages that simply needs to be so familiar to us that it is readily retrievable when we're feeling the pressure of the fallen world that we live in. Let's face it, life is a test. Life is a test. It's a test that we don't bother studying for nearly as much as we should. For some silly reason, we think that we're ready for any test at any time. But we're not. The test comes and we don't know the answers to the questions on the test. And so we guess... We look around for someone to copy the answer from, only to realize that they don't know the answer either, so we get it wrong because they get it wrong. When all the while, God makes it very attainable for us to flourish in any test that life throws at us. In First Peter chapters 1 and 2, Peter writes about the things that God's people need to know in order to flourish when the tests come. In chapter 1, we looked at facts like our spiritual rebirth and our inheritance. We looked at the fact that we've been cleansed by God through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. We looked at what it means for us to pursue holiness. We were referred to as living stones, people chosen by God upon whom He is building His church, His kingdom. And Peter is doing a fantastic job here of getting the minds of the scattered church members to the place where they need to be daily. He's telling them what their foundation looks like. It's solid and beautiful and affirming and confidence building. He describes who they are in eternal, God centered terms. He describes who they are based on the work of his son on the cross, not on their own merit. Peter says, this is who you are. He answers the question for them. So in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, the verses that we just read, Peter reminds them that they are not those who stumble on Christ as a stone that they reject, but they are living stones chosen and used to build on Christ, the cornerstone of the church. And as members of that church, they are, by God's definition, A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. They belong to God. Remember that for later. And they belong to him for a purpose. Can I just tell you how freeing it is to not have to define myself? Uh, Maybe you're thankful for that too. Uh, I don't have to create my own profile. It's been created for me. I only have to agree with it and choose to stand on it. I only have to be who I'm defined to be by my creator. Not an easy task, but a whole lot easier than trying to define myself and then live up to those expectations, good and bad. What Peter was communicating to the church was that they had been given a new identity, one created by God in Christ. And if they took him seriously, they could stand strong with their heads held high. Well, so can we. And that's what God intends for us in our lives. He's the one who says that we're more than conquerors, that we're overcomers. The things that Peter wrote are things that are true of you and me. They're true of God's people, a people for God's possession. People who live in God's light and receive his mercy. So our message this morning starts with our motto. This is the answer to the question of who we are. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Remember that. Those who walk in his light and receive his mercy. And if I could create some sort of cheer that communicated that truth that that we could all do together here... Um, I still wouldn't. I'm not much of a a cheer person. (laughs) But I do believe in telling yourself the truth. And this is the truth that we need to know and live by. We are living stones in the church that God is building on the foundation of his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to pay attention to what Peter's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit and 100% true. So with our motto in mind, let's move on to what Peter has next for the church. Verse 11 and 12. Here's our mission. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, Can we just pause on the first word of verse 11 for a minute? The word is beloved. Beloved. And what it means is so much deeper than what we may initially think. Uh, It's a word that comes from a Greek word that you'll learn in depth later on in the summer. But for now, you need to know just enough about this word to add it to the profile that you've been given of who you are. You and I can be described as beloved. Like the people that Peter's writing to in his letter, we are people who are loved unconditionally by God. Whether we reciprocate that love or not, God loves us. Absolutely, truly, deeply, we are loved. To the one who created us, we have infinite value. So much so that he loves us even when we don't love him back. You are beloved, and so am I. So as you look around this church family on your way out after the service today and on your way in the next time here, make a concentrated effort to mentally create a profile for each person that you see, whether you know them well or not. Acknowledge the fact that every one of us is beloved. That's who these people around you are. Add the other characteristics of their profile from verses 9 and 10 as well. Do whatever it takes to see the person next to you and the one in front of you and the one behind you the way God sees them and the way they're described in 1 Peter. That's who they are. But think about what we do with each other. God describes the person next to you as beloved, as chosen, holy, his own, You may describe that same person as opinionated, petty, critical, shallow, ignorant, prideful, uninteresting, incapable of offering you anything, dreadfully uncool. So who's right? Which one of you is right? You or God? He calls them beloved. What do you call them? And do you, do I, really have the right to contradict God's perspective regarding that person? No, we do not. And I know I've got a long way to go on this, but let's get better at this together. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now the profile expands even more. All of what he has to say about them is true, and now he adds some more truth. Now, if there's one thing about the profile, the description that I find of myself in the word of God that really gets to me at the deepest level, this is it. I am a sojourner. Um, Do you know what that means? It means I am a temporary resident. A temporary resident. Peter's addressing those who have been displaced by persecution, but he's not saying that they are the only ones who should view life this way. In Ephesians, Paul refers to us as strangers and aliens. In Hebrews, we're referred to as strangers and exiles on the earth. The point that God's making through these words is that this is not our home. I was just talking with someone about this recently. In every one of us is this sense that we really don't belong here. And we get that sense because it's true. This is not our home. This experience here on earth is not what we were created for. This experience has been badly tainted by sin. And it's very different than what our eternal experience is to be like. And what it will be like. My spirit is... Reaching, it's stretching for something else, for something better. It's reaching for home. It's reaching for eternity when all things will be restored. In the meantime, I've come to terms with my identity as a sojourner, a temporary resident of this earth and this life. Now, if you really haven't given this reality any thought, let me strongly encourage you to do so. Get comfortable with the fact that you're not supposed to be comfortable here. Acknowledge that this is not your home. This is a perspective that you simply have to embrace. You were created for for heaven, for what's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This fallen world is not your eternal reality. You're a temporary resident here, your identity does not come from this place comes from somewhere else your residency is in heaven your authority is in heaven your marching orders come from heaven your father is in heaven and that makes you a citizen of heaven you're a temporary resident in this place for this short life because of that reality the reality of your home being heaven the place that you will return to you can and should view this place very differently than you would if it was your home Life on earth should be viewed as, by us as a stay in a hotel, not time settling into our house. This is a visit. We're not getting settled. We're temporary residents. And I have this urge to repeat that a hundred times just to make sure that you get it. And the reason I have that urge is because the way we view life depends entirely on whether or not we get the fact that we are sojourners. If we see ourselves as permanent residents here, We'll spend our lives establishing, enhancing, defending, and enjoying what we have here. We can very easily get very comfortable with our temporary residence if we see it as our permanent residence or even as more than what it is. We can get comfortable or we can get frustrated if our residence is not what we dreamed it would be or it's not as nice as our neighbor's residence. And then we miss why we're here entirely. What Peter was trying to do was help his audience understand their situation. As far as their identity went, they were set. They were blessed beyond belief in their identity as God's chosen. But their blessing was obviously not their living situation. Their living situation, according to Peter and God, was that of temporary residents. Because they were temporary residents, they were to live as those under the authority of the king of their permanent residence in heaven. So let me reinforce something that I've said more than once here. Because we have been given citizenship in heaven and promised an inheritance equal to that of Jesus Christ, we are being asked by God to surrender our time here as temporary residents. Our eternal life is ours to enjoy forever in the presence of God. Our eternal life compared to our earthly lives. Our temporary earthly lives are to be offered up to God for his plan and for his purposes. This is where life truly takes on meaning here. Peter challenges the church to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So what does that mean? Well, in this temporary existence, our flesh is a very powerful force. Our earthly desires are strong and their primary focus is pleasure. Our earthly desires put us at the center of our existence. The ruler of this world who is not God targets our flesh, our self-centered, pleasure-driven self. And his approach can be summed up in a text message abbreviation. YOLO. You only live once. Get all the pleasure you can because you only live for 70 or 80 years and then it's all over. Live for yourself. And Peter's warning them against living for themselves. And he's warning us too. In fact, Peter says that we're to keep our conduct among those who are living for themselves honorable. Peter says that we're to live our lives honorably for the sake of those who have not yet found their eternal home. When the world sees that we're living our lives for someone other than ourselves, their thoughts will be turned to that sense in them that this life is not all that there is. And that very thing may draw them to to their creator who loves them unconditionally. In verse 12, Peter says that the good in us is intended to point people to God where they will give him glory. On Thursday, I watched as the state of Minnesota celebrated what it believes is a giant step forward in the realm of the definition of marriage. Peter says that the world will speak against us as evildoers. Um, this is so relevant to where we're at right now. Because we do not see same-sex marriage as lining up with God's design for his creation, we are seen as evil in much of this society now. Um, so be it. If it's not the same-sex marriage issue, it'll be another one. But Peter's giving us a great clue here about our conduct in the midst of this pressure. He says that we are to keep our conduct honorable honorable. And that doesn't mean that we're to stand up and shout out the things that we're against. Peter says that we're to be engaged in honorable things so that those things will cause the world to take notice and see what it is to live honorably. There have been some articles circulating recently about this upcoming generation in our society and what they're looking for in us as the church. And one of the strongest statements being made by this next generation is something that we really need to pay attention to. What they're looking for from us is a clear picture of what we stand for, not what we stand against. This is the challenge before us right now, just like it was the challenge before the church that Peter was writing to. We need to get very good at demonstrating and proclaiming what we stand for. And Peter's going to address this further in just a few minutes. Our mission as the church in the world that is going to face pressure is to conduct our lives in an honorable way. In verse 13, Peter moves on to write about what that might look like in our society when it comes to the world's government. Uh, Let's read from verses 13 through 17. Peter writes this, "'Be subject for the Lord's sake "'to every human institution, "'whether it be to the emperor as supreme "'or to governors as sent by him "'to punish those who do evil "'and praise those who do good.' For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, This is one of those commands in Scripture that draws a sigh of frustration out of a lot of Christian people. We're hoping here that Peter's addressing a very specific audience at a very specific time. But this wasn't intended just for those who belong to that particular scattered church. If it was, then so was the part about being God's chosen. Or the part about us conducting ourselves honorably. We have to pay attention to this statement as well. Peter commands the church to be subject to every human institution. Being subject means that we're to put ourselves under the authority of human government. That authority is the power that God has allowed those individuals and groups to have for a purpose. God is not hands off when it comes to the leaders of nations. God has allowed our leaders in government to be where they're at at this particular time for his particular purposes. He's not controlling them. But he has allowed them to use their power to lead people. Now before your mind goes crazy with all the reasons why we shouldn't have to subject ourselves to men and women who are not including God in their role as leaders of government, um, let's consider who Peter was writing to here. The scattered church that Peter wrote to lived under the authority of none other than Nero, And Nero was not a very nice person. Um, We learned about him not too long ago. Nero was insane. And his idea of fun things to do with Christ followers was tying them to stakes and lighting them on fire to illuminate his garden. Nero was oppressive in ways that are too gruesome to talk about here, even towards his own family. Yet Peter's instructing the church to voluntarily subject themselves to Nero's authority And what Peter is not saying is that the church was required to blindly do whatever was asked of them, regardless of whether or not it agreed with God and his principles. Um, Look back to Daniel and his friends and you'll see an example of when God is our highest authority and we're not to obey the rulers of the land. If Nero told them to kill, they were not expected to kill. Peter was telling them to obey the laws of government church was not to rebel against the government just because they didn't agree with the way the government treated Christians. Relevant to us today? Absolutely. As citizens uh, and residents of the United States of America, we are to subject ourselves to the leaders, <laughs> you're catching on slowly here, <laughs> we're to subject ourselves to the leaders of this nation. And Peter explains why, right here, in what we 've just read, Peter writes, "Be subject for the lord 's sake, be subject for the lord 's sake. Um, that should be enough enough for us right there shouldn 't it? We should be subject to the leaders of our nation for the lord 's sake, period. If God says it, we do it, and then Peter kind of repeats himself in verse fifteen. For this is the will of God, he says. He's re-emphasizing the fact that we're to do this out of obedience to God. But then Peter gives us a little more to motivate us. And here's a statement that I found very encouraging, especially this week, as our state took what they feel is this historical step forward, one that'll continue to make God's people and God himself out to be the ones who are wrong, mean, narrow-minded, and ignorant Still in verse 15, Peter writes that by doing good, the church is going to put to silence, literally muzzle the ignorance of foolish people. And I'm not talking here, and Peter's not either, about those who make mistakes or are just lost. What we're talking about is those who persecute the church for standing up for truth. That's what was happening to the scattered church. But, Peter writes, by doing good they could actually silence the persecutors. By being subject to the leaders of government and obeying the laws of the land, God's people are doing good. And that good leaves the persecutors without ammunition against the church, and they end up with nothing to say. But, and and this is a big but, if the church is not doing any good, the persecutors have plenty to say. And here we are back to the principle of being known for what we're for, not for what we're against. We are to be known for the good that we do, including being subject to our leaders in government. Um, can I give you a good suggestion if you're not already doing this? Um, I'm not doing much of this, and I need to get much better of this. Um, part of doing good in this context is actually praying For your leaders. Uh, Imagine if there was a group of us from this church who prayed regularly for our mayor and actually let him know that we were doing so. Uh, I happen to know that he would really, really appreciate that. If you're struck by that idea at all, then take a step and start this. Get some people here committed to praying for our mayor, or governor, or police chief, or whoever comes to your heart. Let's do good so that our leaders will never have any ground upon which to criticize us. Let's subject ourselves to our leaders. This is the will of God. Now Peter had learned this lesson while he walked with Jesus, hadn't he? Um, Some Pharisees and Herodians came one day to trap Jesus by asking him about paying taxes. Jesus asked them for a coin and directed them to the image on the coin. And then he made the statement... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then, of course, is the time when the tax collectors came to the disciples expecting to collect their tax and accusing Jesus of not paying the tax. But Jesus responded by paying the tax with a coin that he miraculously delivered in the mouth of a tilapia. And that is actually what that fish was a type of tilapia. Having been there and learned from Jesus, Peter's now instructing the church on being subject to their nation's leaders. In verse 16, Peter commands the church to live as people who are free, but not to use that freedom to cover up our bad choices. We all like to think of ourselves as free, and we are free. Christ has set us free, but when Christ set us free from the power and penalty of sin, he called us to a different kind of freedom. It was the freedom to live by choice as servants of God. And this is what I was referring to earlier that I told you to watch for. Peter describes us as a people for God's own possession. And as strange as this seems to say, I could not be happier about belonging to somebody else. This is the only way that we can begin to grasp the art of submission. We are God's possession. We are God's servants. But then Peter moves on to what our submission is to look like in another environment. 1 Peter 2 verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit, credit is it if when you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter has written about our motto and our mission in society. Now he writes about our mission in our workplace. And in order to understand how this could be relevant to us in this day and age, we need to know a little bit more about what it means to be a servant in Peter's time. Um, What we do need to know is that we can't compare slavery in New Testament times to slavery in our own country's history. They are not the same thing. Not the same thing. In Peter's time, slaves made up a social class. In fact, between 25 and 40% of the population were in the slave class. People were born into this class. Abandoned children became a part of this class. People could even sell themselves into slavery in order to pay their debts or fulfill their obligations. Slavery was a social, economic, political matter. It was not an issue of race or ethnicity. So when Peter writes to servants... He's writing to a class of people that was made up from everything from miners to cooks to doctors. Most any skill could be represented in the servant class. They just worked for someone else. And that's what's at the heart of what we're looking at in 1 Peter this morning. Peter's writing to people who were under someone else's authority. Displaced Christians, residents of foreign lands, and now servants. And look at what he writes. Peter instructs those in the servant class to be subject to their masters in verse 18. And he includes those masters who are unjust. This is not just about being subject to the nice bosses. We're to subject ourselves to the authority of the mean bosses as well. Um, Do you have a nice boss? You are blessed. Do you have a mean boss? You are a challenge to subject yourself to their authority for God's sake. Uh, Years ago when I worked for the Home Depot, um, I had a not very nice boss. His name was Nick. I was not fond of Nick. Um, One night as I was alone cleaning up the garden center outside after a long summer day, Nick had the nerve to page me rather than coming to see how overwhelmed I was and tell me to hurry up. I hung up on Nick with passion. (laughs) My job depended on Nick. He was my boss, but I slammed the phone down on him without even giving it a second thought. I did not subject myself to his authority. Uh, A long conversation followed after I had worked out my frustration on some bags of topsoil, and I apologized sincerely for the disrespect that I had shown him. I had not conducted myself honorably. Neither had Nick. But God commands us to focus on our side of the relationship, not theirs. We are to treat those in authority over us with the respect that is due a leader regardless of our perspective on their ability to lead. Peter says that if we are doing good and subjecting ourselves to our employer's authority, it will be a gracious thing if they mistreat us without due cause. God's grace will work through that situation. We're to let God do the work. We're not to take responsibility for the judgment of our superiors. Now Peter has written to the persecuted... The exiles, the sojourners, the servants. He said a lot in just a few verses in 1 Peter 2. But now he's going to show them who set the standard for what this submission looks like. He brings the ultimate model into play. 1 Peter 2 verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called because... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What a beautiful place to bring the scattered church to. Peter leads them to the face of Jesus. Um, My initial hope as I wrote this message was to cover the next section today as well. Um, In chapter 3, Peter addresses husbands and wives. And at first glance, I think it always terrifies a pastor when he gets to verses that say things like, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Um, Nothing boosts a pastor's approval rating like preaching on wives submitting to their husbands but I actually got to where I was really excited to break this passage down with you. And so I'm going to save it and I'm going to give Peter's advice to husbands and wives the attention that it deserves at another time. So we'll come back to 1 Peter when I get back from vacation. Um, This letter is bursting with things that we can't just skim over. So let me close today instead with what we just read. In his letter, Peter's timing seems so critical to me. He's instructing the church to be subject to Nero. No small request. Peter is also instructing the servants in the church to be subject to their masters, no matter how badly they might treat them. He even mentions the beatings that they might be receiving. This is also a sizable request. Subject yourselves to the insane ruler who delights in torturing your kind and to the wicked master who likes to beat you. And I can imagine the hearers of Peter's letter, listening to it being read in church, shaking their heads and seriously questioning Peter's instruction. It seems so illogical and, and basically impossible. No one likes to be told to submit to someone who is corrupt or wicked or insane. And so Peter, at the perfect time, turns their attention to the one who had walked this road before them. He asks his readers to consider Jesus. And so listen, as if Peter were writing to you, we have been called to submit ourselves to the leaders, the authorities in our lives, because Jesus did the same. He gave us an example, Peter says, that we might follow in his footsteps. We've made mistakes that we've faced the consequences of. Jesus didn't make any mistakes. No sin, no deceit. He did not return reviling for reviling. He did not threaten when suffering. But he continuously entrusted himself to his father, the one who had ultimate authority. And his father asked him to suffer under the authority of those who ruled in the world that he created. This morning we're going to celebrate communion together. What we're going to do symbolically represents the very act that granted us our freedom. Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we could die to the power of sin and live as servants of righteousness. His wounds healed us. His blood cleansed us. Because of what Christ endured at the hands of the rulers that day, you and I have been brought home to our shepherd. I want you to try to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to be crucified by mere humans. The men who swung the whips that tore the flesh from Jesus' back were whipping the one who had given them life. Men who drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet had been created by Jesus himself. Yet Jesus Christ willingly subjected himself to their authority for his Father's sake. He never fought back. He never threatened. He never mentioned what he could do to them with only a word. He simply obeyed his ultimate authority. His Father. And we're to do the same. We're to obey our highest authority, our great shepherd. And if he says that we are to subject ourselves to every human institution, then that's what we're to do. And we're to let him display his grace and his power in the midst of our obedience. As you come to partake of the bread and the cup this morning. Come with the understanding that these elements represent Christ's demonstration of submission that Peter is asking us to follow. I'm going to invite the elders to come now and prepare to serve and the worship team to come and return to the stage. Let's pray together as we prepare to share communion. Father in heaven, I praise you for your authority. I acknowledge that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. That there is no greater authority in our lives than you. I praise you because you set us free from the sin that we were in bondage to through the blood of your son, Jesus. And I acknowledge that in that freedom, you're asking us to become servants again, this time to you, to lay ourselves at your feet and agree that whatever you say will do it. God, every so often we come up against things that you're asking of us that are not necessarily easy. And submission is one of those things that's not very easy. You know that we live in a culture where our personal rights are put up higher than anything else. But you're asking us, Father, in your word to be subject to the authorities around us. Whether that be in government, in our workplace, whatever that might look like, you are asking us to treat the people over us as you would treat a leader. God, help us to find the grace and humility to do that. Help us to take confidence in the fact that you will work in those situations. That your kingdom will advance, that your will will be done if we are obedient to you in submitting to the authorities in our lives. God, it it stuns me to put it in the context of Jesus subjecting himself to the authorities of his day when he was the very one who created them and who was about to die for them at their doing. Father, you've made it clear in today's passage that we have an example set before us so that we can follow in his steps. Thank you for communicating it this way to us through the book of First Peter. for taking a man like Peter who was willing to fight authority at the the drop of a hat, who was willing to draw his sword, who was willing to take up and lead a rebellion, for taking him and helping him through Jesus Christ to understand the kind of submission that you're asking for from us. Teach us this, God, because this is foreign to us. We trust you to use every situation in which we do this for your glory and to bring those around us to the point where they will see that you are the authority in our lives and where their spirits will be drawn to you maybe in a way that they never have before. God, we declare this morning that we are your servants, that we have been set free by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, and have voluntarily entered into a position of servant in your kingdom. Teach us to be just that. God, we come now to, to share in communion together, to, to take these elements that represent the body and blood of your Son, As we come to do this, don't let us do this as a ritual. Help us to clear up anything that needs to be cleared up before you, to ask forgiveness for anything that we've done that goes against your will, and to come clean, washed, refreshed, renewed, to fully embrace the fact that your son Jesus gave his life in submission for your sake, And that you, in turn, use that submission to purchase our freedom. Praise you, Father, for what you've done for us. Meet us now as we come to celebrate and remember together. In Jesus' name, amen.